We are the existentialists. Four existential psychotherapists invite you to join us in a dialogue about what it means to live an existentially tuned life. Your hosts are Xavier Williams, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Janelle Dresner, therapist in Edmonton, Canada. Chelsea Stenner, therapist in South Surrey, Canada. And Mihaela Lounano, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Welcome to our podcast, The Existentialist. In today's episode, we are going to talk with you about uh, what existential psychotherapy is and how is it to be an existential psychotherapist. And we'll um, start by um, telling you a bit about ourselves, why um, introducing ourselves and telling you what brought us together to, to do this podcast and to have this uh, dialogue with each other on various topics related to existential psychotherapy. So I will um, invite my colleagues to maybe say their name and a little bit about themselves and what um, what do you hope to accomplish by through this dialogue? My name is Xavier. Um, uh, it, you'll hear me referred to as Zav, though, in, well, just in case, just to orient you. Um, what do I want to achieve by this podcast? Um, really, to to try and and share existential thought and particularly existential therapeutic thought with the wider world, with the, the average person in the street to kind of uh, deconstruct it, demystify it and, and really make it applicable to everyday life situations, um, not just when people are struggling with uh, mental health challenges or disorders or, um, uh, and so, so that it can be helpful. And, and I just like talking about existentialism a lot. Yeah, and for me, I guess I um, I can uh, relate to to what you said, Sav. I mean, I I enjoy uh, dialoguing with colleagues and friends about uh, you know existential psychotherapy, given our kind of shared background in this, and we are going to talk a little bit more about that um, a bit later. Um, so even through this dialogue, I hope that um, some of the existential concepts that usually people find a bit too abstract for practical application, uh, that this concept may, may become more alive and more practical. And so my hope is that through this podcast we can uh, reach an audience of ranging from like uh, people living their lives to psychotherapists uh, wanting to, to try some of the existential therapy um, strategies, attitudes, and so on. And um, yeah, it's really... It's also really good and really enjoyable to to do this together with uh, the three of you. For me, the reason that I'd like to be a part of this podcast um, on one hand is to just enjoy really fantastic conversation with you guys that I've gotten to know through my own training in existential therapy and uh, through master's program with some of you as well. But I'm also amazed at... In- in doing some of the existential trainings, or at least the introduction seminars, how many people remark 
wow, like, I can't believe we can talk this deeply. And this is so incredible and fulfilling. And I really am enjoying this. And I wish I could just have these types of conversations with other people in my life. So I'm always taken aback by how well received this type of dialogue is and how needed it is. So I'd like to be a part of being able to bring it to more people and to engage beyond the scope of just our community. And my name is Chelsea. And um, what kind of interested me in doing this podcast was similarly to you, Janelle, was to um, be able to have fun and lighthearted, but also deep and meaningful conversations around um, topics um, that are existentially oriented that have been really life-changing for me. And I think, like you said as well, with the the training, so much of it has been very transformative um, in kind of opening up a new way of being um, that I hadn't been really that attuned to before this. And so I'm looking to really be able to um, share that with others in a practical way. I also hope to, on more of like a professional level, um, have some of my colleagues understand kind of what it is that I do as an existential therapist and what that means. Um, And then also for clients to understand as well the benefits of existential therapy and what it could do for their life or the benefits of seeing an existential therapist. Um, Because I think like Zav said, there's a lot um, that is kind of mysterious or maybe philosophical or not well understood. Um, But I think it's a really, really beautiful um, method that can be very meaningful um, in changing a lot of different things for people. So that's kind of my hope in, in being part of this together. Yeah, so um, uh, given that we kind of shared a bit about ourselves and what um, what brought us together to this podcast, maybe it's a good uh, moment to talk, uh, to talk about what existential therapy is. And um, this is uh, a daunting task in, in many ways and yet a very simple a simple one. It's uh, very daunting because um, as the kind of the most recent definition of existential therapy shows us, it takes a lot of time, a long time and um, a lot of effort for um, uh, existential psychotherapies to agree on what is existential psychotherapy. On the other hand, it's uh, uh, deceptively simple to, to uh, talk about what existential therapy is about because uh, it's about... Uh, how we live as human beings, what it means to exist, to be here and now living our lives as human beings. It's about who we are, our human condition, our shared human condition, and um, what it means to exist. And um, etymologically speaking, the term existence means to, to stand out, to rise above. It's coming from Latin existere, meaning that we are really standing up and rise above the conditions of our existence, not to ignore them or to pretend that they are not there, but actually to engage with them and to respond to them and to find uh, the best life that we can live uh, for each of us in, in the midst of these conditions and limitations. 
And existential, existential therapy is all about uh, being present in the here and now with ourselves and with our clients and with everyone else in our lives, hopefully, and to um, examine our lived experiences. And lived experience means basically whatever we, we experience, we live, we think about in a certain moment to, um, to slow down to attend, to pay attention to what is going on with us and then to, to find our position towards what's, uh, what's going on with us and to give our free response while assuming responsibility for our choices. And given, uh, given these main characteristics that, uh, again, don't do justice to, to um, everything that existential psychotherapy is, um, I wonder if we can talk about uh, what brought each of us to to be attracted to existential thought to existential psychotherapy why um, why did we choose to pursue training in existential psychotherapy rather than in um, another form of therapy or no therapy at all doing a completely different career i think my my um i think i know how how I came to to existential therapy, uh, existential analysis. Um, uh, it was a day in 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 one of my uh, master's courses, in which I was challenged to pick my theory of psychotherapy, uh, which was very difficult to do, considering I hadn't at that point really uh, learnt about any of them. Um, so making a decision without information is is hard. Um, but I was lucky enough to to be prescribed a book called uh, "Love's Executioner" by uh, an existential psychiatrist in the in uh, the U.S. called Irvin Yalom. Um, he's quite famous, um, and I remember reading basically accounts of his uh, sessions with some of his clients, and simply that it resonated with me. I kind of said, "Well, this is the kind of therapist I want to be." Um, and then, of course, it, it it chimed in with all the kind of philosophy that I'd read in my undergrad, and uh, and even I think my own view of the world, or, and particularly dealing with ideas of um, of uh, you know death and the limitations of life and uh, acceptance and freedom, um, and it, it was really the resonance of okay, I think I've I think I've I might have found my home. I might know where I'm going. Um, of course, that also required further depth and, and training, and I was lucky enough to find you know existential analysis um, and a training program, which ended up confirming it all. For me, entering into existential psychotherapy, there was about two phases. As I reflected on it, I realized that there was this deep resonance with existential psychotherapy even before I really knew of its existence. And this stemmed from a very formative experience of my life. Um, my dad died when I was nearing 14. And in our last conversation together, he had said that the last piece of advice that I'm going to give you is always be not the victim, choose your way. And that piece of advice completely shaped the way that I lived my life. 
that I could see myself as somebody who actually authored my actions. I could actually choose a different attitude. And even to this day, I, I do wonder if he had read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and I'm never going to know that. But I'm so appreciative that he that he gave me that piece of advice. And, and so I'd carried that with me as this 14-year-old until I got to grad school. And then here we are in grad school, very similar to Zav's story. And we have to pick a theory. And I get to, I think, I think it was chapter three, if I can remember, this uh, theory on existential psychotherapy. I think I read the first paragraph and it used words like responsibility, freedom, agency, authenticity. And I was like, yep, that's it for me. And then very fortunately for me, uh, Mahilo was my prof at the time. There were these seminars going on for training in existential psychotherapy. And so she's like, you should come. You would like it. I was like, okay. So I went having no idea that it was like a few years long. I had no clue. I went to the training and um, I never looked back. It was one of the best decisions that I ever made. And every month for the training, the themes would just resonate so deeply. Um, and so I, I've stayed since 2015. And for me, I um, found existentialism in originally in my undergrad um, as more of a philosophy that I was drawn to. But then later in my master's, um, similarly to you, Janelle, in having to pick a, a theory uh, to choose for how I would like to counsel clients as my kind of main orientation, um, I also continued to read up on existential psychotherapy and uh, introduce myself to it there. And it started to resonate um, for me more at the surface level and and then from there, um, in my cohort, and actually more so the cohorts kind of above me in my uh, master's training, I noticed a few individuals who were part of the existential analysis training and um, just kind of the, the depth that they had, the, um, the ability for case conceptualization, um, how they saw kind of their clients' sufferings when they would bring uh, cases to discuss. And um, I was really intrigued and impressed. And so that kind of also um, made me more interested. And then um, Mahila, who was also my instructor in, in the master's training as well, um, she invited me out to a training. And so I began my training in existential analysis in 2017. And um, Really, from day one, it's just felt more and more and more of a homecoming um, each time I engage with the material and um, and continue my own training. It really just resonates on a deeper and deeper level. And, um, and so that's what drew me in, and that's how I counsel clients. It's my primary uh, method that I use. I like how you said that, though, the way that some of your colleagues would view suffering. Mm-hmm. I definitely resonate with the uniqueness of this approach and how suffering um, is talked about, is looked at, and is held is quite unique. So hopefully we'll be able to 
shed some light on that and, and dive into that deeper. Yeah, and I um, I relate to what you said, Chelsea, about um, existentialism and existential thought, um, entering my life through more through um, philosophy. Um, and that happened to me when I was still um, in Romania in doing my undergrad studies. And also I was um, uh, enrolled uh, at university in, um, in the psychology department. I used to skip classes in psychology yes. to go to the philosophy yes, department did. classes <laughs> because I found it. Yes, you know that. Eh? Yes, because um, I found those classes uh, much more interesting, interesting than um, the experimental psych. The, these were the first two years of psychology full of experiments with cockroaches and mice and stuff like that. And I wasn't particularly attracted to those. At the same time with this, uh, there was a course on Heidegger at the uh, University of Bucharest in the philosophy department. And so I um, audited that class, that course that lasted for about uh, two years, if not more. And so this is when uh, I think I, this was my first encounter with um, existential thought and existential philosophy. And uh, I'm not sure how much I chose it or how, how much it chose me. And that's not to, you know, to give away my freedom, but it felt like it was uh, a mutual choice in a, in a way. So that was, um, that, this is where it started. And then I, I came to Canada in 2005. And in about a year after, or less, even after I was here and um, redoing my master's degree in counseling psychology at UBC, I, uh, I got an email through, the, through UBC Listserv about uh, training in existential analysis, which was uh, introduced as a form of existential psychotherapy. And I guess probably the word Heidegger, the name Heidegger was in there somewhere. So I was like, oh, this is intriguing. And then I, I became part of uh, the first training cohort in Canada in existential analysis. And uh, since then I kept going. And I finished my own training, then I, I started uh, teaching the training in Canada, and it um, for me it felt like a home in a very in a very unique way, so to speak, because my involvement with existential analysis really overlaps almost completely with my stay in Canada. So it became a sort of home identity here in Canada and uh, a bridge to my roots, my European roots, and um, my first love for existential philosophy that I experienced uh, in Romania. And um, yeah, I'm, it feels um, like a very fortunate providential event in my life that I, um, I encountered existential analysis and I became part of this community. That is really cool that there was an opportunity to join the training that it had begun just around the time that you were here and that you could be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's again, it, for me, it feels uh, providential in, in some ways. And um, it's a bit ironic that uh, I came here like in a completely different culture to kind of deepen some of the um, uh, European, you know, ways of being in 
in many ways. I think it's so. providential for. Yes, I'm still I'm still thinking about it. Yes, sorry. I think it's Go providential ahead, for Janelle and I as well that you responded totally. to that listserv because I don't know if we would be here in this training had it not been for uh, you signing up mm. and joining originally in that first cohort. Hang on, we can't possibly be saying that it's yeah. all fate. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. We're oh. That <laughs> oh no. <laughs> now we are getting into at the core of it. Indeed. <laughs> like what do existentialists think about fate? Well, this is a this is a, gr a great question. My I would suggest that um th they don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and by by that I mean by by that I mean is is um uh, perhaps fate is the conditions of existence, mm. those things that are. Um, I think any anybody who believes in fate believes on that it is. Um, but that as an existentialist within that, within those conditions, I have agency. I am able to respond. I'm able to have an attitude, a position, make my own decisions, and and then suffer the consequences or enjoy them. Yeah, whichever comes first. Well, then I'm very yes, thankful indeed. that Mahila made her choice to respond to the listserv, which also opened up the opportunity for me to respond as well. Yeah, the world presented an opportunity, yeah. chose it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do reflect on how free my choice was. Of course, I made the choice, it was free, but I really didn't know what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, the similar, I think about how you had said that, like, it had chosen me. So it was very, it was a very mutual attraction. Um, and that I feel I couldn't mm. say no to. And I've wondered about that. I think when something is so right and resonates so deeply, I do question, are we free? Because it just gripped me. And I, I wouldn't want to say no. I also don't know if I could have said no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very good point, Janelle. I, I feel the same that faithful applies not so much about uh, something is predetermined and it has to go in a certain way. But is that, um, yeah, synchronicity, that coming together, that it's so perfectly aligned or it feels so perfectly aligned that it almost brings freedom and necessity together. Like it cannot be another way and yet I'm fully free in it and I was absolutely free to respond or not to that email and I was actually thinking a lot about that because it wasn't easy to pursue an, a new training program while I just arrived in a new country and trying to establish you know my life here so I could have very easily not respond or I could have easily stopped uh, with my own training and not continue but there were many moments when it felt like I, I cannot not continue, but it wasn't out of lack of freedom or being forced or coerced. It was just that uh, unique, uh, faithful, you know, meeting of freedom and necessity. I love how you say that freedom and necessity and where those two meet, I find myself and how do I respond to both of these? creates a very interesting image in my mind. Thank you for that. Mm. Thank you. So I wonder if it's, um, since we keep talking about um, how much we, we love our training in existential analysis, if it's a, it's a good idea to 
tell our listeners a bit more about what is existential analysis. And then we can, of course, have a, a dialogue about it. So um, existential analysis is uh, one of the um, several schools of existential psychotherapy that um, currently exist. Um, so I'm, I, uh, I will mention uh, some of the other schools, like there is a school of design analysis um, and then a school of existential phenomenological therapy in, in Great Britain, in London, the British School of Existential Analysis. And then there is in the States the existential humanistic or existential in integrative um, psychotherapy. And so existential analysis um, um, is um, originated in Vienna and it, um, its, its roots are in uh, Viktor Frankl's uh, logotherapy. And Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in Vienna and he developed logotherapy first in around 1929. And um, logotherapy is a form of psychotherapy that deals with um, uh, problems of meaning. I mean, people who are disconnected from their meaning in life or um, have lost their meaning in life because of usually a crisis, uh, a loss, a tragedy that happens to them. Um, then for these people, logotherapy is um, uh, still the, the therapy of choice even today. And uh, some people talk about meaning-based therapies, which is uh, very similar to logotherapy. And um, so in 1983, um, Alfred Lengle, who was uh, one of Viktor Frankl's um, uh, students and, uh, and friend, um, started developing uh, a broader form of um, uh, existential therapy called existential analysis, uh, which uh, maintained um, or incorporated um, logotherapy um, as part of it, and then um, pro um, developed a more comprehensive um, psychotherapeutic approach with specific treatment methods for different uh, psychological disorders. Um, so, uh, I will um, maybe I will offer a, a definition of uh, uh, EA. By the way, existential analysis we refer to it shortly as EA. And then based on this definition, we may together kind of unpack it because as you'll notice, it's uh, probably not the most user-friendly definition. But so EA, like practically speaking, means to, to live with inner consent, meaning to give our yes to how we live our life and to everything that we are doing in our everyday life. It could be even from very little um, actions like being here in this podcast, uh, to much more significant life decisions. Also, it's um, EA is a person-centered therapy that um, helps uh, people live uh, with freedom and responsibility. It's um, helping them achieve uh, a free experiencing of their emotions, thoughts, inner life, so that so that they can make authentic decisions and live in a personally responsible way towards themselves, towards life, and towards others. So that's, um, this is how um, existential analysis is defined. So I wonder if we would like to maybe, through dialogue, unpack a bit this, and uh, even um, tell our listeners how each of these, uh, you know, points of this definition, um, are how, how are they alive for us, or how do we live them in our in our life, in our work as psychotherapists. 
Thank you for that description. That was wonderful. Well, if we break it down, okay, so we started with it's, uh, I think you mentioned inner consent, inner yes, Mm -hmm. which is quite, yeah, okay, good. It's quite a significant component of it. Um, I remember something really shifted for me when we talked about how much easier it is to say no than it is to say yes, that yes reveals more of ourselves. And so then when we look at our lives, the things that we say yes to really start to reflect back on who we are. And all of a sudden we become responsible to that. That's, that's the result. And so um, I think inner consent really does form the basis of, of this therapy. What, what is it that we say yes to? Where can we find ourselves in our decisions? Uh, in what ways do I show up? And it's pretty amazing with my clients how much I use the word consent. What do you say? What do you say yes to? What do you consent to? And that that does shift. That can bring about a shift in attitude of, oh, this is actually something that I can choose and decide what I think about it, what I feel about it, what I want to do with it. Yes, to be an active participant in one's own life rather than kind of life just happening to you passively. Totally. Yeah. A, a very practical example that I use all, almost all the time with every single client about inner consent is, um, is uh, going to a part, being invited to a party on a, let's say on an evening where you, you really don't want to. And you know, straight away, as soon as you get the invitation, you get this feeling inside of you going, Oh, not really. But you kind of say yes. Cause this is what we do. Uh, and then you go, and, and even if you have a good time, some part of you really wanted to be at home, and or the next day you, you regret, because maybe, I don't know, you had a bit too much fun and you stayed out a bit too late. Um, and so that, that inner consent for, for me was very much being a, uh, allowing myself to, to say what I actually felt, what I actually wanted, and then also to to be responsible for that and that knowing that that might have an impact on whoever's inviting me and um and, and dealing with that um so it's not so much these grand not necessarily i mean these grand kind of oh my gosh what do i consent to in my life it's as very simple as do i go left or right to party or not to party <laughs> yeah or, or of course, to be or not to be. What? That's also no, don't a bring small one. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> I, I, I far prefer the. Um, I, I far prefer the uh, the suggestion or the question the, the question that um, two existentialists or an existentialist and a, and a Stoic, I think, on the east coast of the of the U.S. Um, wrote about, and they. The uh, the title of the article was um, essentially choose coffee or choose death, mm-hmm. because if you were going to decide to live, you may as well have a coffee. I fully stand by that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I can't relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> especially, especially in the mornings. Oh, it's a necessity. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. It it is very close to to be. Or and not I'm to becoming be, really. very aware that I haven't had my coffee today. <laughs> Oh, no. Where are your priorities, Chelsea? <laughs> oh, it's a bit uh, sleep late, Chelsea. was the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah. But thank you for that example, Dav, of, of 
do I consent to going to a party? Because you're right, mm-hmm. it there's some very big decisions that require consent, but every little mm-hmm. decision that we make does as well. And how sometimes how not great it feels to go when you really didn't want to, when there wasn't consent. Absolutely. And I and I'd, I'd maybe encourage uh, any listeners um you know t- to try it mm-hmm. uh, on, on a very minor thing at first and see how it feels to do it like really feel that thing because uh, we we talked about uh, in the definition talks about this kind of um uh, living an emotionally free life and at least <clears throat> in my understanding my conception of it that i've internalized is that when we make a decision within a consent when i make a decision within a consent i feel light I actually have heaviness lifts from me, even if the decision doesn't you know, the doesn't really work out. It feels light, and this is what often indicates to me that I'm making I'm saying yes when I mean yes and no when I mean no. Yeah, that is the right decision. It mm. fits with you. It's you mm. in that decision, and that's um, like for me, like from the definition, like what I um, I really uh, it really touched me when I first read it and even after I I read it several times and telling to other people is the um, the concept of authenticity that is based on this uh, free experience of our inner life and also that um, is calling for um, responsibility so uh, being authentic uh, and I'm going to build on Sav's example like making a decision that corresponds to me and standing by it even if the consequences are not uh, the most desirable, and yet being able to assume those consequences. And um, being myself is not um, being authentically me. It's not um, an easy an easy way to be. And um, I know many people talk about authenticity and being truly myself, but it comes with a um, relatively heavy responsibility because it's, um, it's definitely <laughs> not the way to popularity. No. And not um, not an, an easy way to be, so yeah. But it still um, it speaks to me, and um, I um, in my practice as psychotherapist, I sooner or later I I go there with my clients and I ask them, so how is this for you, and is this what you truly want to do, and is this uh, what uh, corresponds to you, and it's uh, not always the, an easy discussion or a comfortable question. Do you mind if I ask you to say more to the relationship between authenticity and responsibility? Because I think that is such a key piece, but I'm not sure that everybody would understand that. Yeah, I think when I am myself and I stand for what I experience and what I what I think that I'm what I'm choosing and what I think and expressing who I am, it's. Um, it comes with some consequences. It has an impact. I mean, think about it when you are fully yourself, you know, and people keep talking about being fully myself, and that's a very great way of talking and being, but it's being fully myself. I don't know how many people actually are able to (laughs) withstand that necessarily or want, truly want the other person to be fully themselves. So there could be some consequences, including like hurting the other. I've been um, Levinas, an existential 
philosopher said that by simply being myself or fully myself, I can um, I can do violence. I may be doing violence to the other. So it's uh, it's that kind of uh, consequence that um, is calling for responsibility from my part. It's not just an easy stroll in the park, like hey, look at me, I am myself. It can uh, it can damage relationships with others, but also with oneself, depending on what the consequences of my decisions are. That's such a huge question. How do I live fully me, fully authentically, but still live with others? At what point do maybe I cross the boundaries of another or we we experience some tension? And quite a few people are very uncomfortable with interpersonal tension. Mm-hmm. I, I know I am. I don't love it. I do avoid conflict if I can. At the same time, though, there does come a point where if I want to live truly authentically, it may not align with maybe my um, family and what they say is acceptable or my community or these other groups that I've you know, grown up with and, and are currently situated in. So often there is there is tension, like Zav, you said that the, you felt light. Um, and absolutely, I agree with that. I think the lightness comes from, at least for me, of resting in a decision that I have this sense of I'm standing with myself, mm-hmm. which feels incredible. But it doesn't necessarily feel good interpersonally mm-hmm. all the time. Indeed. I, th- I think you make fantastic points there, Janelle. And, and it, uh, what came to mind was um, something that um, uh, my mother has accused me of um, uh, particularly when I first kind of got into this existential kind of uh, realm, uh, because she has one idea of existentialism, and that's um, that's the Sartrean version, um, uh, and and she doesn't understand it, of course, because she hasn't really looked into it. But which is? Could you explain that for a second? Um, well, essentially, the the existential philosophy um, uh, espoused by by Jean Paul Sartre, who was a, a major cultural figure in in France in the sixties. 60s, 50s, um, and um, and the way at least that that she interpreted, and I think that a lot of people might interpret existentialism mm. is as selfishness, right? Is that I don't give a fuck. Nothing, you know. Well, you know, if there's no meaning in life and there's no order and there's no well, I can just do whatever I like, um, and and that and and that will clearly you know annoy people and and great on people but i think that comes back to the question you posed janelle about how it authenticity and responsibility mm-hmm. are, go hand in hand that it's not about just doing what i want and not caring about anybody else by any stretch of the imagination i think for me there um at least with the topic of inner consent um it was it was a hard one there were lots of growing pains initially like in terms of okay what does it mean to be authentic and to actually go with or be open to what resonates for me and initially in my life that meant um, a lot of big changes and Janelle when you pointed out you know family changes or community um, expectations uh, or family values and expectations I had to really take a look at, you know, what really resonates with me versus what 
what doesn't. And for me, it took a lot of courage to make those decisions, um, to live a life that I, I could say yes to from within. Um, and, and it's still, it's still hard at times to, to live with that kind of inner consent. Um, but it definitely gets easier. I find so now that some of those big shifts are, are out of the way or behind me, um, it's, it's easier now to be attuned to those little shifts or those little things, um, or the day-to-day things like your example, Zav, uh, with the party, those are easier to pay attention to now. And I think certainly on, in our inner relationship with ourselves, we feel that. And then I think people on the outside of us, they respond to that as well. The more we live authentically, people start to get to know us even maybe more in a more real way or in a deeper way. And so there is a response in the outer world also. And sometimes that, you know, can cause more tension, but sometimes that actually can alleviate quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful experience, or at least in my my experience, in my experience, it was a wonderful experience to have the outside world listen or hear what I had to say, give my my authentic decision, and to respond positively. Uh, it was really transformative when I remember going back to the party example. It wasn't so much a party; it was I was supposed to meet a friend, and I texted them what I, instead of texting them what I would usually text and say, mm. oh, I'm just not feeling well or, you know, um, I, I said, um, you know, mm. tonight is not the night for me. I just, I just rather be at home. And their response was so positive. It was the most, you know, it was, they were completely understanding and they said, oh, you know, I'm, you know, it's a pity that you, you can't make it, but we'll, you know, we'll, we'll catch up another time. And that's so relatable. <laughs> it mm-hmm. is, isn't it? And and it also points uh, towards something really important in existential analysis, like what you said that the outer world kind of responded positively, right? Like as we uh, we um, in we are all the time in dialogue both with our inner world when we ask ourselves, does this correspond to me? Do I really want to go to the party, or what do I want if I say no to the party? To what do I say yes? Which may be. Um, an evening at home with family or by myself, resting, mm-hmm. watching a movie with family or by myself and so on. But it's also what you said, Sav, it's also important to communicate my decision to the outer world and to remain open to what uh, the world is telling me back about my decision. So we are uh, all the time in a double dialogue with ourselves, asking ourselves what do we want, what do we prefer, to what do we say yes and we we turn um, in, in dialogue with the outer world and um, see how does the world <laughs> respond to me or what uh, what are the offers in the world that I can take up or not mm-hmm. yeah that's something that I, I just want to highlight just because it's you know it, it, I think it's a a word that we're going to use a lot is dialogue mm-hmm. um, and and one of the things I notice with clients a lot is um, yeah I'll, I'll talk about dialogue and we'll have a dialogue in the session. And then I'll talk about, um, you know, they'll say to me, well, oh, I, I have a, I dialogue with myself all the time. Mm-hmm. And the very first question I ask them is, are you really having a dialogue with yourself? Or, and they look at me a bit puzzled and I said, do you talk back to yourself? Because what a lot of them mm-hmm. describe is really a monologue and often a very critical monologue. 
right? Of you're not, I'm not, you're not good enough. You should be doing this. You do, and there's no pushback. There's no dialogue. There's no back and forth. Often they are talking to their mother or father, <laughs> or, or even better, or even, we or even better, <laughs> yes, or or even better, they are just uh, their mother and father talk to them. Like it's not even. Yeah, this yeah. is such a good point, Sav. Like I also ask my clients, like, okay, give me an example. Like just do it. It kind of like uh, think aloud or oh, talk, yeah. right? And and it's usually like they're just listen to a very critical voice that mm-hmm. is not themselves. And, and that's the part where, like in the definition, guiding somebody to an emotionally free decision um, or emotionally free experience kind of really stood out to me because I find when I ask my clients about their emotional experience of something. Uh, very quickly, it's a, a deviation away from that to either like a secondary emotional response, like, oh, I shouldn't have been sad. And now I'm frustrated with myself that I'm sad or um, other like cognitions or expectations or judgments that quite often sound like other people's voices or um, cultural narratives or maybe other kinds of oppressing narratives um, rather than kind of the the essence of the kind of that first emotion that was there for them first like sab when you described that party example i just think it's so clear that initial kind of gut sense of like mm, i don't want to go um and paying attention to that and really being open to it and sitting with it and dialoguing about it rather than kind of jumping to that next uh initial reaction where oh I should go or they'll be disappointed in me and I think that highlights the freedom part to say actually it's okay Mm -hmm. that you don't want to go and you're allowed to feel that you're allowed to not want to and to and it's valuable to separate our feelings and our impulses from what we do and that's what we try to do in existential psychotherapy is to differentiate those because you can have a feeling about something and not want to go and then weigh the pros and cons and say you know what though like I haven't seen this person in a long time they're only maybe they're only in town every few months so even though I don't want to I'm still going to choose to go because there's some other values here at play but it's all right to just allow that dislike or that hesitancy to be there mm-hmm. And I think that maybe that's a good time to talk about the phenomenology. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I was about to say that uh, very related to what you said, Charles, this phenomenology, that this is what Janelle elaborated before, is the free experiencing that we talk about in in the definition that I I read. Like it's uh, allowing myself to experience whatever is there and then take a moment and weigh the pros and cons to use your language journal and kind of see what uh, what is the most important value in there and make a choice or as you may hear us uh, saying to respond rather than to react mm-hmm. yes exactly so going back to your um, suggestion Chelsea so what is phenomenology <laughs> would <laughs> to like to try a, a definition <laughs> just kidding that's <laughs> a stab at it, it yeah I was going to say you can actually say the word first? yes <laughs> <laughs> and if you cannot say phenomenology, yeah. <laughs> try phenomenological. That will be that will be much easier. <laughs> I find it helps if you put on a a, a very um uh, uh character. Uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a very stereotypical American accent. What? Let's hear it. Yeah, let's come hear on. it. Phenomenological. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> I'm gonna cherish that okay, that's, forever. That's Thank painful. you. <laughs> well, to be honest, I think it's even harder in Spanish. It's phenomenología. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah. Fe- I don't, how would it be in Romanian, Mahila? Phenomenologia. Oh. What about French? La phenomenologie. Where it's much easier in the Latin huh. languages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I think we still, we still keep our podcast in English for now, but maybe the next episode you will be in for a treat. Yeah, so so when we talk about EA being a phenomenological therapy and us kind of engaging in a phenomenological dialogue and process, what do we mean by that? I think that's a great idea, Chelsea, to to unpack for our listeners a bit because it sounds like a, it's a very complicated uh, word, especially in English, but it's actually again very simple. It's like uh, and very difficult at the same time. Uh, it's like paying attention and looking in order to see and listening in order to hear. And again, it seems very simple and you may you may say, well, yeah, we are doing this all the time. Why do you need a complicated word for that? But actually, if you think about even today, have you really seen what is in front of you? Have you really heard what maybe your partner told you or your children tried to communicate to you? Have you really heard what uh, someone told you through an email or a Zoom meeting and all that? Because I think many times we think that, uh, yeah, of course, I listen to you, I hear you, or, yeah, of course, I I look at it, I see it. But we really don't. Because in order to see or hear, we we need to pay attention. And a special kind of attention. Attention, a caring attention. And an attention that is focused, and at the same time, that allows us to open, to to see what is there and what is possible. And an attention that, that doesn't assume. Mm-hmm. I think going into a lot of things, we, we have presumptions and expectations and assumptions even before we, or as we're taking in what we're hearing. And, and I think that's the essence of the phenomenology is the openness to setting those assumptions or biases aside um, and to use like a really, I don't know, um, concrete example. Like if I'm observing an orange, an orange will um, speak to me in its own way differently than a sailboat will or a sunset Mm -hmm. or a sunrise or another uh, conversation. And I think, um, I think EA really celebrate or phenomenology within EA really celebrates uh, the uniqueness of what is before us, whatever that may be, and to attune to that uniqueness and to let it speak to me and impress upon me. That's beautiful. Um, I and I just want to offer a really, really simple breakdown of the word phenomenology, which is that anytime you see logical, it's it's the study of and a study of a phenomenon. And a phenomenon is anything that we observe um, that exists that we can look at. 
So everything, just as your example of the orange and the sailboat, anything can be a phenomenon that we can look at. And for us to actually slow down enough to see a thing, but really see it in its essence. This is an incredible way of viewing our world. And there's so much richness when we can slow down and open it up. Um, But we often, we take a lot of things for granted. We make a ton of assumptions about um, what the things that we observe and see and what their meanings are. We assume what you know, what it's going to mean, how we interpret it. Um, We make judgments about it before we actually really understand what it is in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And to, 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 to take it out of the series a a little bit, just because this is one of my favorite things, but it's on topic is um, the differences between ontology, causality, epistemology and phenomenology. And so, wow. <laughs> did you say yourself. you were taking us out of the seriousness? <laughs> yes. Well, just, 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 just hang on, just wait. Mm-hmm. See, see how this impresses upon you. So, ontology, what the fuck? <laughs> Causality, why the fuck? Epistemology, how the why the fuck? And phenomenology, the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's very good. <laughs> so we just deal with the fuck. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And we look at it and we try to see it for what it is. I was um, on the same, <laughs> on a similar topic, I was thinking like, it's almost like uh, the phenomenological look is kind of reclaiming our uh, um, noetic virginity, so to speak, or capacity <laughs> to look at you. Okay, wow. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think you've lost me now. I don't know if the listeners are going to get all noetic Okay. Tell us more, please. Like I was thinking about, like really, like um, seeing something for what it is, while um, stripping down um, all the pres- uh, assumptions, presumptions, and all that. So it's um, and reclaiming a sort of uh, again pure, innocent uh, way of looking. So this is what I what I meant. But uh, it's funny because it uh, the word virginity came to my mind just before you read about. Uh, I, and I do think it's appropriate in to use that word because um, I don't think we often approach life that way. And so we kind of have to relearn what it's like to, to look and to see something in and of itself. Um, so I can't remember your exact wording, but you said like reclaiming a virginity or something like that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Reclaiming, restoring, mm. like that kind of like again, a pure um, look that uh, or way of looking mm-hmm. that is um, is not uh, you know filled with assumptions. It's kind of like a a, a looking at something with, with naivety again, mm-hmm. kind of the eyes of a child. Really, mm-hmm. how does a child engage with an object that we will look at and go, well, this is just a I don't know. I'm looking around the room here, a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but a bicycle is is more than just an object and a bicycle, and um, and 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 what what does it impress upon me? How do I engage with it? What is it that that appeals to me? Uh, uh, Chelsea, your example of the orange reminded me of um, of how there's this um, a composer in the U.S. called Martin Lauritsen, and he composed this beautiful uh, choral piece, um, and he said he he composed it because um, he he saw a painting um, that made him weep, 
And all it was was a, a, a bit of fruit on a table. Mm. And and that is the, the other aspect of the word virginity is it's also, yes, new, fresh, but there is a fullness in and mm-hmm. of itself that there is a completeness already to be experienced. Um, if we really go back to the word virgin and what it means is that it, it mm-hmm. is enough in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, um, these um, etymological excursions, so to speak, they are very, very helpful sometimes to to illuminate the meaning of a word. And it's also it uh, to me when you when you spoke, Janelle, like it also what came to me is like there is also the an attitude of awe and surprise, mm-hmm. and uh, that comes with reclaiming that um, that innocent look, the way of looking. Would someone like to kind of share what it's like to work with a client in a phenomenological way? Um, it's it's first of all quite hard, um, uh, because th- at least in the in the technique of the of phenomenology, the idea is to to the the technical term is called epoche, but it's to bracket to take away all your uh, talk, take all your assumptions and preconceived ideas and. Um, and to try, because it's incredibly hard, to put them aside and then to listen to the client and to pay attention to how your client impresses you. Um, and it's not impresses as in, oh, they're so brilliant, but mm-hmm. literally as if they were pushing down on your body what it would feel like, what their words, their manner, their um, uh, their gesticulations, everything, how that impresses you and and tuning into that because that gives us information about what they're saying. This is important when when working with clients, but we can also do this with people in everyday life. For example, a client comes in and says, I'm depressed. Well, as therapists, we have a bunch of assumptions about what that means. We have different theories about depression. We use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It tells us what major depression is and all the symptomology and the criteria. However, we don't ever fully know how it is to be depressed for each person. And so what this does is we expand that. We say, okay, tell us more. How is it for you? How does it feel for you? Um, What reactions come up? What's going on in your body? And to really explore in a radical, open way um, how depression is experienced for them and we may find that yes it aligns with the criteria but we may also and quite often do discover such a richness in their experience and certain nuances that we would miss if we just you know okay depression next and moved on that that's a fabulous um point there to make janelle um the one of the things that i love about um existential therapy and existential analysis in particular is is that the question is is not so much what is wrong with you as what is your suffering mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, this is uh, what we ask ourselves and of course ask our clients as well what uh, what occupies you what preoccupies you what do you suffer from like this, uh, and even if the their uh, symptoms of depression align perfectly with the DSM criteria, their experience is so much more, so much richer 
incredibly rich, even if uh, on the surface the, the symptoms match those criteria. Um, the way they leave each of those symptoms is so personal and unique, and it's um, and engaging them in exploring that is therapeutic itself. Because so uh, going back to what it means to work phenomenologically with clients, so what Sal said is about uh, allowing ourselves to be uh, moved by what the client uh, shares with us, and it's also of course being open and eliciting that uh, lived experience from from the client in a dialogical manner. And the reason we allow ourselves to be so open and to be so deeply moved and to check with ourselves, how is this for me right now? To be here with this depressed person is because by accessing our own um, essence, I mean, how it is for us at our core to be with this person, we invite uh, the client to to connect with their own core beyond uh, symptoms, uh, labels, diagnostic labels, and so on, it's basically inviting them to take themselves seriously in their experience and to make room for it. I mean, depression is, of course, a dreadful, usually a very dreadful state for most people, but it's also a gift. So I think uh, the phenomenological openness allows us to see and to feel even something that is usually dreadful and unpleasant as carrying a potential gift, the gift of slowing down the gift of turning towards myself to to check with myself so that's uh, that's also one of the fruits of phenomenology and then finally like uh, it's not just about oh i feel in a certain way this is my lived experience and we dialogue and share it together it's also the the key question in um, existential analysis and in um, existential therapy is like okay and now how do i live with this what is my response, not just my reaction to this? Because maybe I really hate my depression. That's my reaction. I want to get rid of it. But what is my response to it? How can I live with it? How can I let it um, shape my, my existence? How can I let it change my, way of being, my way, ways of being? Maybe I was a little bit too busy before I got depressed. Maybe I was, uh, maybe I was um, doing too much. Maybe maybe I'm not living my life mm-hmm. authentically. Yes. Which is yes. definitely a theme that comes mm-hmm. up with depression. Mm-hmm. So so that's kind of coming full circle. So we start with openness to what is, to allowing ourselves to be moved and inviting the client to access their free lived experience and then staying with it to to distill what um, how to respond to this. Is this just a, a terrible fate that I'm depressed? And if it is, how can I be with it? But maybe it's more than just an, a very unpleasant emotional experience. Thank you for summarizing that for us, Mahila. I hope I hope that made it a little bit more <laughs> concrete. And it's uh, it's uh, ironic that uh, such a difficult uh, word and concept, phenomenology. Is actually rooted in the most kind of concrete and tangible, you know, reality of our experiences. There is no phenomenology without uh, something very concrete. Mm-hmm. We can only do this process that we just talked about if someone is willing to um, to share with us something very concrete. That's why we ask them not for the symptoms of depression, but how is it for you personally? Describe it to me. 
Yeah, to describe is a word that I, I use all the time. Um, I, I'll ask a question and the clients will start explaining. Mm. They'll start telling me the why and and I have to bring them back and say, no, no, the how, you know, what is it? Describe it to me. You know, even if you don't have the, the, know the precise emotional word for something, just describe what it feels like, what images come up, what it elicits in you, what colors even come up. Which can be so challenging. Mm-hmm. Just, Absolutely. For a lot of us, I mean, we, we often live our lives through, like live our lives adjacent, like through interpretation, not quite fully in our experience. Then all of a sudden you sit with somebody and you really find yourself in this moment of, oh, oh, how how is it for me actually? This is rather hard to say. So it's simple and yet in practice, um, it can be quite challenging. And And hopefully with this podcast, we're able to, do exactly that. Take some existential concepts and themes that are often talked about, um, you know, quite intellectually with theories and abstract concepts, and to actually bring them down into our lived experience and embody them, be with them, and be with them together. And be with them in an open manner, with all the um, uncertainty and ambiguity that they elicit. And this is something really hard to be with. Mm-hmm. But you can also start anywhere too, as as a way of kind of trying to work this muscle of of seeing differently or seeing anew or seeing fresh. Um, it could even be like you know I I have shreddies for breakfast and I, I do it with not a whole lot of thought, but I could ask myself this mm-hmm. morning, like how is it for me to have this for breakfast um do i like it do i mm-hmm. enjoy it what what are the sensations with it um it's really something that you can start and explore and expand with even very benign normal things that you wouldn't normally think about that's a fabulous point chelsea mm-hmm. and a great question to to ponder and to ask uh, ourselves um if not at every step in our day, because probably that's not realistic, at least uh, often enough, like, how is it for me to do this? How is it How is it for me to try that? How is it for me? So just to check uh, with ourselves and to remain open to whatever come, comes up. Like, if it's... Uh, and, of course, to try, uh, going back to the word describe, to, um, if you can, to describe um, in... Uh, more details uh, your experience rather than saying yeah it's good or mm-hmm. it's bad yeah what what is good or what is bad about mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. indeed uh, a, a helpful example there is um i worked in a in a restaurant um in my younger days and um uh, the manager uh, pro- uh, prohibited us from saying nice when describing the dishes mm-hmm. uh, and so we had to become very creative um, in in how how do you describe a piece of steak? Uh, there's many ways, and but if you have to yeah every night try and recreate that, you can get quite yeah creative and mm-hmm. and have fun with it. Yeah, I think some words should be prohibited, and that doesn't come from a phenomenological <laughs> attitude. My, it's coming from my other side, but like words like nice, interesting, lovely, I mean they are 
so empty and shallow most of the time, unless you really mean this is interesting and then you provide mm-hmm. <laughs> a description about what is interesting about that. But there are so many vacuous, empty words that we use to take us away from this uh, uh, phenomenological way of being and to cover up actually our free experiencing for the sake of being polite and so on. So since um, since we already alluded to the fact that it's important to um, to pause once in a while and um, have a dialogue with yourself and to ask yourself some questions and then to be open to receive yourself and your answer to these questions, we um, we intend to um, end our um, episodes of this podcast with an invitation for you in the form of an existential question. And we invite you to to let that question again move you, see how how you receive it. If you can receive it, if you cannot receive it, uh, try to notice what makes it hard for you to receive it, and then how does it reverberate through you? How does it move you? And what comes up in terms of uh, maybe first reaction or impulse? But then try to stay still and distill your response. To this question. And we will have a spot on our website as well where you can uh, bring your answers and you can share them with us too. Mm-hmm. Or indeed on Instagram. Mm-hmm. There too. Mm-hmm. So the existential question for this episode is what is it like for you to live amidst uncertainty or with uncertainty? And our times are very uncertain times as we all experience and there may be more uncertainties in your life that are even unrelated to the times that we are live so ask yourself openly as openly as possible what is it like for you to live with this uncertainty and on this note thank you for listening to our episode today and we are um, looking forward to reconnecting with you our next episode. Follow us on Instagram at Existentialist Podcast and let us know your answer to today's existential question. To learn more about us, listen to and learn about other episodes, visit our website at existentialistpodcast.com.